0: Well, it's good to be back up here. I'm very grateful that uh, the powers that be, especially uh, Tim and Adam, uh, gave thumbs up to my uh, late desire to go see my new grandson. Uh, so I was able to get down there last week, and uh, that was a great, uh, great time. Um, I want to confess that I'm the one responsible for the blue candles. I know that some disappointment has been registered, and uh, I'm, I'm a little bit ambivalent about the church calendar, uh, not that I'm mortally offended by it, but I'm a little bit ambivalent, and uh, you m- might know that they're ordinarily purple, and that's traditional, um, and I don't know if you know that that purple is intended to communicate uh, that Advent is a penitential season. Uh, you know, we often think of Advent in our Protestant way of being uh, a season of expectation. We're expecting the Lord's coming and His second coming. Uh, but the reason they were purple is it was supposed to be a time when you uh, took stock, uh, and in that way is very similar to Lent uh, in that regard, that those were both penitential seasons. And, and of course, anyone who's ever read Calvin's Institutes uh, knows that uh, every season is a penitential season in the Reformed Church. Uh, we don't want to limit our penitential uh, impulses, our reflective, our confessional impulses, simply to two seasons of the year. Uh, but every year, every week, we're called to repent. We're called to believe the gospel. It's our in-breathing and outbreathing. So, the Reformed Church uh, offered, I think at the time of the Reformation, the option of putting candles out that were blue uh, we don't want to do away with Christmas, and we don't want to do away with the expectation of it. Uh, but the blue signifies uh, the royalty of the king whom we expect. So, I'm just taking the blame on my own shoulders. It, you know, stop blaming Grace. It's not her fault. And, uh, and if, you, if you want to complain, come on, I, I can handle it. Um, so, that being said, uh, let's think about Ruth. Uh, O Holy Night is a favorite uh, Christmas carol, uh, and it brings to mind uh, the way in which some pretty important things uh, in the Bible take place at night. I don't know what Louis Armstrong was thinking when he wrote of the bright blessed day and the dark sacred night, uh, but there are dark sacred nights uh, in the Bible. Uh, Of course, we'll celebrate that uh, next Sunday. Uh, with uh, the birth of Jesus, it takes place, of course, at night, uh, the angels appearing to the shepherds, the magi being led by a star, uh, but we were talking this morning in the adult education class about that uh, dark, sacred night when Abraham uh, had a covenant made uh, by the Lord, uh, that this deep darkness, go back and read Genesis chapter 15, Uh there Jacob's vision, of uh, the staircase to heaven, takes place at night in a dream, his wrestling with the angel. Similarly, uh, the most well-known verse in the Bible, uh, which was uh, recited earlier, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, took place in a nighttime conversation uh, when Nicodemus went under cover of night uh, to talk to Jesus about uh, what was going on with his ministry. Uh, well somewhat overlooked in these Nighttime events in the Bible is this chapter of Ruth. And what I want to suggest is it's also a holy night. It's a dark, sacred night. There's a purity to it, uh, also honor, and it's quite counter uh, to what we're used to, uh, such that we can lament uh, our inability to think uh, clearly about this, or at least the modern part of our minds. Uh, to think clearly about this, to see such honor and such goodness uh, and such purity, uh, the Bible uses the word "hesed." And uh, if you're a Hebrew scholar, you'd probably pronounce it a little bit differently than I did. Uh, but that word "hesed" describes that honor and goodness and purity. Uh, it's a key idea uh, in the Book of Ruth, and we'll read it today uh, in chapter three. Uh, although it only occurs three times in the book of Ruth, uh, it's translated here, kindness, uh, and and we'll get to that uh, in, in due course. But if you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up to Ruth uh, chapter 3. Uh, you probably know where Ruth is by this time, right after the judges, right before 1 Samuel. It's an interesting placement, actually. It's a placement that... Uh, kind of comes out of the the way the Septuagint uh, was formed. It put all the historical books kind of collected together in the beginning. Uh, In the Hebrew text, uh, Ruth is contained in the section called the Writings. Uh, And we'll get to why that may or may not be mildly important uh, later on today. Uh, But let me read uh, Ruth chapter 3. Please pay attention. This is the Word of God. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "'My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies.' And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask." For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the Word of God, and we believe it's true. Uh, This is a strange and a dangerous night. Uh, The first thing that happens in the first four verses is that that Naomi uh, decides to act in Ruth's behalf, it's kind of a little bit of a shift in mood uh, for Naomi, but she is uh, not concerned about her own well-being, at least that's the way it's expressed, uh, but she's concerned for uh, Ruth's well-being. Uh, she says, should I not seek rest for you? And you remember that in the Bible, the word rest is a, is a big word. It has to do with salvation. It has to do with the Sabbath. I remember Jesus' promise uh, when he invited everyone who was weary and heavy laden to come to him. Remember what he promised, I will give you rest uh, if you come to me. Uh, But there are problems uh, with Naomi's plan, and uh, I think it's important to notice these so that we can understand just what it is that Ruth is doing here. Uh, Ruth is from Moab, and Moab traditionally was uh, the pitched enemy of Israel. Uh, when they had anything to do with each other, it was to be at war with one another. Uh, And even more to the point, in chapter 25 of Numbers, you can go back and check this out, uh, there was an event, uh, an episode, when uh, a bunch of Moabite women seduced uh, the Israelite men, and this incurred God's judgment against the nation of Israel. So, she, um, ethnically, uh, nationally is in a, uh, not in a great position uh, to do what Naomi's suggesting that she do. Uh, in, in addition to that, threshing floors are not great places uh, during the harvest time. Uh, they were the places where in other nations there would have been uh, pagan fertility rites taking place. Uh, threshing floors were a little bit like the kinds of fraternity parties at which women are at risk. Uh, not a place uh, for Ruth to go Uh, and be safe. Nonetheless, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, make yourself presentable, Uh, maybe even make yourself alluring, Uh, almost kind of like getting ready to go out on a date. Now, she's poor, so she probably doesn't get all that gussied up, Uh, but she is to bathe. She is to anoint herself uh, and to make herself uh, attractive, kind of like a date, but of course, in the ancient Near East, there's no dating, right? especially in Israel. And this is one of the things that we have to understand, and it's very hard for us to understand this in our um, uh, culture these days. Uh, I've got a, a book uh, that's it's quite provocative. It's called Adam and Eve After the Pill, uh, and it's such a, a, a good book that it's been updated uh, 10 years after it was written, still kind of prescient uh, in its analysis of what's going on in the culture. Uh, but it is the case, and I think it's you know, it's been documented that the birth control pill is probably the single most uh, world-altering technological advance uh, that's ever taken place in history, Uh, that it's almost impossible for us to think uh, the way these people thought about the combination of marriage and sex and the bearing of children. Uh, But in Israel, that's what happened. Uh, there was marriage, then there was sex, then there was the bearing of children, and those three things were inextricably linked. Now, there could be disruptions, there could be immorality, uh, but that was the ordinary way that things happened. And, and when you think how much grief there is in the world and how much grief there is in our own society that those things have been disrupted and that those things have been overturned and they've been blasted apart, um, I've read some social workers who say that the, the key to life, and they instruct children in this, the key to life is that you uh, do uh, f- it four or five things. You graduate, you get a job, you get married, and you bear children. And you do it in that order. And if you think about where our society would be if every teenager understood that. Uh, that you get that order straight, uh, and things tend to go well with you. And, of course, the sociologists will give you all kinds of studies about the potential that you have for uh, thriving, you know, on whatever level, if those things are held to be straight. Well, as this unfolds, you need to understand that those things are tied together in that order, and this is what Naomi is pushing Ruth to. Uh, Now, she says, get down there, wash, anoint yourself, Uh, don't make yourself known until he's finished eating and drinking, Uh, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, verse 4 is a little alarming. I mean, the word uncover is open to multiple interpretations. The word feet is open to multiple interpretations. The word lie down is actually not open to multiple interpretations. It's very clear uh, what that means. Uh, But what Naomi is suggesting is that Ruth put herself at the mercy of Boaz. Now, some of the commentators say that when Naomi gives this instruction, she's implying a lot of trust in Ruth and a lot of trust in Boaz. Nonetheless, it's risky. What's going to happen? How is this going to turn out? Well, Ruth follows through uh, in, the, in, the, in the follow-up to this uh, in verse 5. She replies, all that you say, I will do. She follows the instructions. She uncovers. She lies down. And uh, it may be literally at his feet. It may be next to him. Uh, but in any case, it's a dicey situation. Now, you know, it is kind of interesting Uh, that the Bible has many places in it uh, where this kind of activity is spoken of in refreshingly honest and straightforward ways. Uh, I remember Philip Yancey, and this has to be 40 years ago, uh, wrote a little book saying, you know, the big questions that I would like to ask. And one of them was, how uh, did a group of people who count among their sacred writings the Song of Solomon Uh, ever get the reputation of being negative about sex? That's a, you know, a bit of a loaded question and it's a good question and if you dig into the Bible you find that there are all of these places where the Bible is unembarrassed, you know, in talking about the kinds of things that uh, need certainly to be informed by the Word of God, need to be informed by the law of God, Uh, but here she is. Uh, Whatever and wherever She is lying and whatever she's done. uh, Boaz, at least, is startled at midnight. Now, midnight's a portentous time uh, in the Old Testament. At midnight, the man was startled. He turned over and, behold, a woman lay at his feet. He's shocked by this, waking up with a woman lying next to him or at his feet. You know, what in the world is going on? It almost looks a little bit comedic. It's dark enough that he doesn't know who she is. And he asks who she is, and she identifies herself. Um, But when I read, I paused. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Because at that point, she's done everything that Naomi's told her to do. And she could, at that point, just wait and see what happens. Isn't that what Naomi said? Um, He will tell you what to do. But I think it's important to note that Ruth goes one step further. She says to him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, once again, loaded language. Very interesting the way that this is played out. And and again, if you're of a sensitive sort, you go, what in the world is taking place here? Uh, This notion in the Hebrew of spreading wings. It's literally spreading the corner of one's garment. It has to do with covering nakedness. Uh, it is used uh, negatively uh, in the book of Leviticus. It is used very positively in Ezekiel chapter 16. You might want to go back and read that this afternoon. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord talks about covering Israel uh, with the hem of his garment and taking Israel to be his bride, taking Israel to be his Uh, marriage partner. So, I mean, clearly what's taking place here is that Ruth is saying, I mean, what is, is she commanding him? It seems, I mean, it seems imperative she's telling him, you need to marry me with all that that implies. Again, the inextricable link in the Scripture between marriage and sex and childbearing. All of that is together when she says to him, "'Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer.'" And it's very interesting that in this passage, she is the one who's taking the initiative. She's the one who's saying, this is what you need to do. Boaz had prayed in the last chapter. I don't know if you remember this. It's as much a benediction as it is a prayer, but I think you can take it as a prayer. Uh, he said to uh, Ruth, "'Back then, the Lord repay you for what you have done.'" and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he's you know, praying for her that a full reward be given to her by the Lord. Under whose wings, again, same kind of language. Very interesting, isn't it? That you have come to take refuge. Ruth is saying, you know, you prayed that for me yesterday. Now I want you to be the fulfillment of that prayer. I want you to be the blessing that God is going to give me uh, in bringing me fully into uh, this community, fully into the nation of Israel, fully into uh, the people of God. Now, that's what we are, where I want to stop and pursue a little bit of a rabbit trail. Um, let's think about this for a minute. What does Ruth want? For what does she yearn, and how is this tied in uh, to the rest of the Bible? I'm going to read you another passage. Uh, from Isaiah uh, chapter 2. You remember back in chapter 1, Ruth had expressed her desire to go with Naomi. Do you remember that? Naomi had said to Orpah and to Ruth, go find your own husbands. She even used the word rest there as well. Uh, Go find rest in your own husbands and your own households. And, uh, And Orpah said, yeah, you're right. And, and took off, turned her back, and went back uh, into Moab, ostensibly to find a husband and a family. Uh, but Ruth said, no, I'm not going to do that. And she said, uh, where is it? She said, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now, I think it's good to kind of pause for a second and say, what, what is going on? What does Ruth want, and why does she want it? Why is she willing to go with Naomi? And and she says it in explicit terms, I want to go where you go and lodge where you lodge, but I want your people to be my people, and I want your God to be my God. I don't want to go back to the gods of Moab. I don't want to go back to the pagan deities uh, that I was taught to worship as a child. I want to go and be with your God. Well, here's an interesting thing that Isaiah prophesies. This, of course, is a good bit after Ruth uh, chronologically. Uh, But in in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, and I'm going to read 2, 3, and 4, this is what Isaiah says, "'It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills.'" and all the nations shall flow into it and many people shall come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways that we may walk that we may walk in his paths for out of zion shall go the law and the word from the Lord the word of the Lord from jerusalem he shall judge between the nations he shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You might remember that that last verse, I think, is engraved in stone at uh, in the, in the, in the front of the United Nations. Uh, a bit of a mockery. Uh, nonetheless, what's it talking about? There's another explicit verse at the end of Zechariah chapter 8, if you want to read that later on today. Uh, But the prophets, all of them, Zechariah and Isaiah especially, speak of a day when the nations are going to see clearly the advantage of Israel. They're going to see the advantage of being a people belonging to the one true God. They're going to see the advantage of the law of God. That's a very interesting thing, isn't it? They're going to see that God's law really does, in the end, make sense. And, they, and they're going to, and, and as a result of that, they're going to come streaming to Jerusalem. I think it's very interesting now. I mean, I don't put a whole lot of stock in it, but I think it's very interesting that some public intellectuals uh, are now proclaiming some kind of fealty to the Christian faith because they've seen that in the chaos of post-modernity and in the chaos of what's taken place lately, Uh, with the rise of anti-Semitism, that there's something good about the law of God. Uh, There's a a woman who is a, you've probably read this, uh, a a pretty famous ex-Muslim public atheist coming out of Somalia uh, who wrote a bold upfront article in Atlantic magazine a couple of weeks ago uh, entitled, Why I'm Now a Christian. And I, I don't know if it's an evangelical conversion. I think it probably surely isn't. Uh, But she's saying that I've seen that the ways of Christians are good ways, that the ways of the people of God are good ways, and there's no other way uh, for a society to thrive uh, for everyone concerned. Uh, It's fascinating the way this is kind of taking place. You can only pray uh, that it will result in in real fruit, uh, in real conversion, in real growth, maybe. Maybe. Uh, You know, I read the news pretty regularly, and I alternate between being depressed and thinking that we're heading to World War III, uh, or thinking, you know, this sounds a lot like the 60s, which preceded uh, the great revival of the 70s in which I was converted. Um, I hope it's the latter. Uh, But here, what you've got is Ruth going to great lengths to become a part of the people of God. In some ways, I think that what she's doing is is very much representative of what's taking place in Isaiah chapter 2. She's the outsider, and she's willing to go all this way to present herself to Boaz in a position that could turn bad in in a New York minute, in a somewhat compromised position because she wants to be part of this people. She wants this God to be her God. You know, she's a lot like the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. Do you remember that? Uh, in uh, On the coastland, of Syrophoenicia, Jesus is there for some reason, and this woman comes to him and says, would you heal my daughter? And Jesus interestingly says, I was sent only to the lost children of Israel. And she said, well, even, don't even the dogs get the crumbs from the table? And he says to her, woman, your faith is great. You know, the, her tenacity, her understanding, and her faith are great. And Jesus says, go home, your daughter's healed. Well, that's Ruth, I think. And, and, and it's interesting that in the Gospels, there are other occasions where there are people who are outside of Israel who believe in a way that puts the Israelites to shame. Doesn't Jesus say of the centurion, I I haven't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel? And so here Ruth is right in that stream. She understands what's at stake, she understands the benefit. So that's a rabbit trail. Let's get back to the text. Uh, Boaz responds, he is floored, uh, and he proves his worth. He says to her, and, and, and again, it, it's hard for me not to chuckle a little bit at this. I mean, it's almost, it's, it's, it's amusing. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So once again, Boaz responds to Ruth, uh, asking that God would bless her, desiring that God would bless her, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, and he mentions her kindness. Now, I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon. This word kindness is the word hesed, which is a loaded, loaded term uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, It occurs three times uh, in this book. Uh, Back in chapter 1, verse 8, Naomi Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord demonstrate kindness to you. May the Lord give you his chesed. Then in chapter 2, verse 20, uh, Naomi, again speaking, says to Ruth this time, uh, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, some of the scholars will, you know, wonder if she's talking about Boaz's kindness I think really it's it's more that she's talking about the Lord's kindness. So so in both uh, chapter one and in chapter two, you had this uh, uh, mention of the Lord's kindness, the Lord's hesed. It's more than kindness, isn't it? It's deeper than that. It has to do with the way that God loves His people. It's faithfulness, it's integrity, it's honor, it's compassion. It's selflessness. It is primarily the way that the Lord deals with his people in tender compassion, in steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. Amen? That's true. So the first two times, the kindness is God's, and here it's Ruth's. Boaz said, You have made this last kindness greater than the first. Her first kindness was to Naomi, sticking with her and gleaning for her. And her second kindness is to Boaz, that she has chosen not to marry uh, for wealth uh, or for pleasure, Uh, the young or the old, whether rich or poor, uh, uh, the young men, whether rich or poor, but she is marrying for the family line, And then he praises her, he says, "Uh, don't fear, Uh, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And this is why it's interesting that Ruth is found in the book of writings, uh, because in the book of writings, right next to Ruth is, is Proverbs 31, wherein is described another worthy woman, an excellent wife. And I think that the initial readers, or if you're reading it in Hebrew, would have to make that connection uh, between Ruth and the wife that is described uh, in in Proverbs 31. So here, Ruth's kindness is on display. He's blown away by it. But what it does is it prompts within him a similar display of kindness. So even though it's not mentioned directly, this is exactly what Boaz is doing. Uh, He himself is being faithful. He's acting with integrity. He's acting honorably, compassionately, selflessly. Her hesed prompts his hesed. He jumps into action. He preserves her honor, which, of course, would speak against any illicit reading of the text. He's eager to preserve her honor. He loads her up with barley Might not mean much to you, but it was a big deal back then. One of the commentators suggests it might have been as as much as 80 pounds of barley. Imagine lugging that through the town and trying to remain innocuous. Uh, And he promises to resolve the situation. There are details having to do with uh, the way that the Redeemer was situated within the family. Sam will get into that next week. Uh, But he promises, I mean the promise is basically that she will be married soon. Uh, she's going to be married within a day or two. Uh, isn't it great that they didn't have extended periods of engagement? Uh, that's another talk for another day. Uh, but he appreciates her. He guards her honor, takes care of her. He makes promises that resonate with integrity. He doesn't say to her, because I love you, I will take you. He says, because I love you, I'll act in your best interests. Uh, This is a little bit of a wedding sermon, isn't it? That the word, when I preach at weddings, I often talk about how the word love changes its meaning uh, when the vows are said. Uh, That up until the wedding, I love you really does mean a little bit of I want you. It means you're pleasing to me, you're delightful to me. I want to be with you, I want you to be with me. Uh, But I tell married couples, when you get married and you promise to love, That's not what you're promising. You're promising to put the interests of the other ahead of your own. That's what you're promising to do and that's precisely what Boaz does here. He's not a lover, not merely a friend, not just a benefactor, but he's a redeemer. He's a redeemer who at his own expense will buy back that which is lost. And of course, all of us who are Christians, we, we perk up a little bit when we hear the word redeemer. It makes us jump a little bit. We used to sing that song, There is a Redeemer. I don't know if you have sung it here. Um, I don't think it's a great song, but still, the sentiment, there is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, is one that resonates. Uh, Ruth kind of fades here. She doesn't do much in chapter four. Her work is done. The wrap-up uh, to this chapter uh, is for her to go and uh, and see Naomi, in verse sixteen. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, uh, "How did you fare, my daughter?" Now, what's interesting is that's a extrapolation. The literal Hebrew question is exactly the question that Boaz had put to her in the dark on the threshing floor. Uh, what Naomi says to Ruth is, "Who are you?" Now, there wasn't any secret to her identity, but it, there was. A question about who are you the morning after last night? It does imply what's happened. It's a reasonable translation, Uh, but that's a good question for all of us to ask. Who are you? I'm a big fan of the old rock band, The Who. Uh, Not their recent iteration, these old doddering guys who can't sing anymore, (laughs) but in their prime. I saw them when I was a young man before I went to seminary. It was a glorious occasion. Um, but they have a very interesting song, Who Are You? Uh, go check out the lyrics to that. Uh, it's actually got a little bit of a, uh, of a spiritual tone to it, even a Christian tone. Who are you? And I think what they're doing in that song, oh, by the way, I'm sorry, uh, is they're asking that question of Jesus. Who are you? Uh, but it's a question for you and me. Who are you? Who is Ruth after this night? And who are you after this worship service? Who are you after this reception of the table? Ruth has had an eventful, frisky, uh, uh, risky, not frisky. That's a great slip, isn't it? That's a classic. uh, An eventful, risky, and fraught night in which a lot could have gone wrong. Boaz could have gotten frisky, but he didn't. (laughs) Who is she the morning after? Uh, Naomi's instincts about Boaz are proven. Her prayers are going to be answered. Ruth's going to find rest. Uh, Ruth's going to find a home, and it's going to be within Israel. Uh, So, you know, what do we do with this apparently quaint, somewhat racy account? Uh, First, I'm only going to give you a couple of things. First, God's providence is on display throughout the book, and that's important to note. Adam built on this last week, built his whole sermon around it. It holds true for the entire book. All of these things are falling together as God designed, and that's a good lesson from the book. Famine, foreign wives, death and destitution, return and bitterness, and it just so happened that Ruth gleaned in the field of Boaz. Uh, Second, uh, it's not insignificant that every time God is mentioned in the mouths of Naomi and Boaz uh, in this book, he is called the Lord. I mean, Naomi calls him the Almighty a couple of times, but basically she's referring to the Lord. And it's easy to skip this. It's easy to miss it. We, we race by it all the time. Uh, but when you see Lord in all caps, you know, small caps in your Bible, you know what that refers to, right? Right? It refers to God's covenant name. It's what's called the tetragrammaton. It's literally, if you were to read it, I am that I am. That's what it says. Now, the Jews wouldn't read that. They would say Adonai when they got to that word. They were so afraid of taking the name of the Lord in vain that they didn't take the name of the Lord at all. And if there was any public reading when they got to YHVH, Y-H-W-H, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. And, and somehow English translators have copied that and so they don't give you the word Yahweh, uh, they give you the word Lord. And if you ever bump into a Jehovah's Witness, he or she's going to bug you about why the word Jehovah's not there. And that's another conversation for another time. But this is the name that was first revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And if you think about it for very long, if you spend some time meditating, on that one instant, uh, you are quickly out of your depth. That God identifies himself with this curious form of the verb to be. The Lord is self-contained. He is self-sufficient. He's immutable. He's impassable. He's holy, holy, holy as the Lord of hosts. And so it's good as we see this you know, kind of a mundane story unfolding that we understand that behind it is the inscrutable Lord, is the immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty victorious, his great name we praise. It's that Lord. And so you always need to ponder that when you come to the book of Ruth. And then the third question would simply be, who are you? Have you sought refuge under the wings of the God of Israel the way Ruth did? Have you known your need, your provision? And I want to put it this way, when was the last time you felt such? When was the last time you felt your need and felt God's provision? And and this is not simply a matter of confessing sin. We all pretty readily do that. We can identify our moral failures, and we can go before the Lord and recite the words of confession, and that's good. That's a necessary reality. But this is not simply a matter of confessing sin, but of acknowledging that all that you need is found in Him. I mean, it's one thing to confess moral failure, uh, but it's another thing to pursue the false gods of wealth, sex, and prestige. And and it's our sad lot, you know, that we can go through the exercises of confessing sin. You know, when I was raised in the Church of Rome, we had to go to confession periodically. And I'd get in there and say, Oh, I disobeyed my parents three times. Oh, you know, I, I lied four times. Oh, I did this and this, you know, four or five times. You know, it's one thing to go in and say, Yeah, you know, i I've, I've got these character flaws. Uh, But it's quite another thing to say uh, that I have not uh, sought my refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. But I have found my security. I have found my resting place uh, somewhere else. We saw in Luke 14, you know, a verse that we probably need to keep going back to again and again. Jesus is so plain there and so loving and so tenderhearted. But he said, no one who does not renounce everything that he has can be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. You won't make it. You won't last. As long as you're seeking your refuge anywhere other than in him. And I, and I would add one other caveat to this. I know we need to get to the Lord's Supper. Uh, are you actively part of a community that draws in the nations? You know, because that's the side word here. Uh, in this. Ruth really wants, she is desperate to be a part of this community, and we don't know what spurred her in that direction. Maybe something in Naomi, you know, maybe something in Elimelech, you know, maybe something in her husband, who knows, but maybe something in the liturgy, maybe something in the prayers that she said, uh, they said, but she wants to get into this group. Are you a part of a community that is likewise drawing people? Are you invested in drawing those who don't know? You know, there's two ways to look at outsiders. You can either look at them as the unwashed, as the condemned, you know, those who are headlong, heading in the wrong direction, you know, or you can look at outsiders uh, as those who are lost and need finding, uh, who are hungry and need feeding, who are blind and need light. Uh, Jesus called them sheep without a shepherd. And his compassion went to them readily. So today we come to a table for those who are hungry and thirsty. And uh, would that we would uh, be nourished to the end uh, that um, we would not be content uh, to hoard uh, this bread and this cup. Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we're so grateful to you. For the beauty of the text, for the beauty of the story, it just seems so much fun on the surface of it. Uh, but the depth of it, uh, as with everything else in the Scripture, uh, is profound. And for that which we are, and for that, uh, we are very, very grateful. Father, we pray that Your Word wouldn't return to You void, but accomplish Your purpose. We pray that it would take deep root uh, in our souls, and we pray. Uh, that you would nourish us by this bread and by this cup uh, for your own glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.